Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Tantra and yoga are the two main schools of spiritual development in Hinduism and Buddhism. Yoga is more the practice of paying attention to things in a way suppressed maybe is too strong a word, but you you purify and get rid of the negative or obscuring qualities and replace them with positive ones through awareness. Tantra, on the other hand, is we are aware of what we love. There's nothing to suppress or change. And realize that we can be with things pretty much the way they are. I'd like to talk about the Tantra of love. Would anybody care to be brave and see if you can describe the difference between regular devotion, devotion to God, devotion to the deity, to the guru, to the dharma, on one hand, versus tantric devotion? That's almost exactly right. So that what, what Fran is saying is that in regular devotion, there's often a feeling of the deity is out there, I'm not the deity, and the deity is greater than I am, he, she is up there, I'm down here, and if I do enough, 
devotional practices, I will gradually come up to that level of understanding and purity, and I will then begin to have this equal relationship. But in Tantra, the notion is that we have gone through enough mindfulness and compassion practices that we are purified enough that we can begin to surrender into the realization that we are the deity, that it is not something separate. So, for instance, in Tibetan Buddhism, you go in to see the Lama, and he, it's almost always a he, but not always anymore, is going to do a an empowerment, let's just say, of Red Tara, the wrathful aspect of the goddess of compassion, Tara. And what he or she will do is give you a visualization and a mantra and bop you on the head with a box of magic stuff and of treasures. And then you do this practice where you visualize the deity and you gradually become the deity. You realize that when you're saying the mantra to Red Tara or Green Tara or White Tara or Chinrezi or Jesus or Hanuman or whoever it is, that the deity is not something out there. It is your own true nature. And we can then extend this to our relationship with other human beings, that we begin to see them too as the deity. When asked, when Maharaji was asked, what's the best form to worship God? He said, every form. And by that, he didn't just mean all the deities on the altar. He meant every form that you meet, every being is the deity. I've been, how can I say this, more and more surrendering into the pandemic rhythm where I'm traveling a lot less, I'm driving around a lot less, I'm shopping a lot less. So I have a lot of time where I could find entertainment or I could do this or do that. And a lot of the time I'm just finding myself feeling love and compassion for people that I know, just doing love and compassion practices, even for myself. I mean, I know there are people in this room who are ill. I know there are people in this room who are having economic upheaval right now in their lives. I know there are people in this room who have other relationship issues that are going on. So I'm finding that my practice is not really deepening so much as it's widening. <laughs> it's like, it's so that in, in a moment to moment way, I just try to realize that because I'm the deity already, I don't have to try to get somewhere and I can just spread or uh, manifest or surrender into how that then flows through me into everybody that I think of. There is a, a practice called guru yoga. To do this practice, it doesn't require that you have a guru, but we will right now do this practice briefly together as an illustration of a tantric sense of relationship. So what I'd like everybody to do is just begin to find a comfortable position and inhabit your body in a mindful, relaxed way, letting your attention scan through your body. Are there any places of deadness or tension or tightness, openness, without judging anything, without trying to change anything, just letting your attention come into your body 
being with it just exactly the way it is. And now instead of doing a yoga practice of gradually eliminating obstacles through mindfulness and control, we're going to breathe into our heart and begin to feel the spacious, connected nature of the heart, breathing in a quality of love, compassion, and breathing out this notion of spaciousness in all directions. Imagine now that seated in front of you is a being who is the perfect manifestation of love, of wisdom, of compassion. It may be a deity that you're attracted to, Christ or Buddha or the Mother or Shiva or Hanuman. It may be a being that doesn't have a specific name, just a generic being of light. But in some way here we're anthropomorphizing true nature into this being sitting in front of us. Just imagine that right in front of you is this being who is the perfect representation of all wisdom, of pure love. What does it feel like to be seated in front of this being? Feeling a sense of gratitude, of wonder, of profound attraction. This being is made out of radiant golden light. Each cell of this being's body is vibrating with pure consciousness. And out of the heart of the being comes a ray of golden light into your body that begins to transform your body into a body of exactly the same size and shape, but now it's made up of the same substance that your substance and the substance of this pure being are identical. Your body, every cell, every molecule vibrating with pure consciousness, the Shakti, the Chi of the universe, the force of life itself.
What does that feel like? No inadequacy, no need, nothing to be accomplished. Fullness, radiance, pure consciousness. Gradually, slowly, your body and the body of this pure being begin to merge into one body. Your body, not just the same as the deity, but your body is the body of the deity, the guru. Your body, the perfect representation of Buddha nature, of Christ consciousness. We're not really imagining ourselves as the deity in substantial form, but as the deity in empty form, of pure energy. And from this perspective, the world outside of yourself is still real, but is internal to awareness. Everything to be perceived that can be perceived is a real form of divine consciousness. So there is nothing to renounce. This understanding encourages us honoring other beings because they too our pure consciousness, rather than seeing ourselves as passively receiving data of experience of external objects through our senses, we experience reality flowing out through us, created moment to moment, all an expression of this pure substance. And when we do get lost in some subtle impression of past actions, if we are able to hold it gently, seeing that it's nothing but another form of the same divine awareness that manifests as all things, then the energy is suddenly digested rather than getting buried again. This is not a cognitive process, but we're digesting experience moment to moment, even the difficult ones, leading to more and more aliveness, awakeness, fully present to feel what is in the moment without judging or needing to making up a story, just devouring the energy of our experience moment to moment. This doesn't have to be a precious practice we do with our eyes closed. It can be done reading the news about the post office.
Maharaji said, the best form to worship God is every form. You should love everyone as God and love each other. If you can't love each other, you can't achieve your goal. If you love God, you overcome all impurities. If you love God, she takes care of everything. Coming back into our virtual room here, see if you can open your eyes and perceive what you see and hear in the room without that needing to separate you from the experience that you are pure consciousness, you are the deity. What you perceive, whether it's animate or inanimate, is also pure consciousness. So rather than the devotion of need or inadequacy or a sense of poverty, reaching out to something better, there is a sense of profound fullness, a possibility of romance with our experience. Go from being conditioned to longing for love to being love itself. In Tantra, at least in Hindu Tantra, all of reality is, is seen as the mother. So that in a very real sense, this practice is having a love affair with the mother. To the extent you had a difficult relationship with your own mother, psychological complication tends to arise. Can we allow the mother to have a fierce face as well as a kind face? Can we have this sense of merging again and again with this mother who protects, who nourishes? Her only desire, it's as if, she, if you are her only child, you are this precious child, and all she wants is for you to be safe and whole, to realize that you are safe and whole. Safety, of course, is a relative concept. We're safe, but we're not safe. <laughs> Somebody could die before the end of the meeting. Somebody could go broke before the end of the meeting. Who knows what could happen? But fundamentally, we're safe. Consciousness doesn't disappear. Okay. So in some ways, Tantra is a remarkably precise training for being able to die consciously. If we haven't come to the tantric stage of love and understanding, death is going to be a lot more difficult. We're living with the mother. As I said, I, I got a phone call from somebody in the room who may or may not, time will tell, have lost a, a big pile of money. So in a way, that's living with the mother, right? Try living with that, that part of the mother. Try living with 
the mother when you have cancer. Certainly, living with your biological mother has its own challenges, but they're really only reflecting and probably amplifying our relationship with the mother that's out there in just terms of physical reality. So in, in, in Hindu Tantra, the mother is all form, energy, matter, thought, anything that can be experienced is the mother. So it's, it's the relationship with the mother is the relationship with life. It's the relationship with anything we can perceive and experience. The, the male principle then is the unmanifest absolute. Moment to moment, these two are making love all the time. The unmanifest absolute is interpenetrating the manifest relative. And they're having this dance of uh, cosmic romance going on all the time. And in certain states of consciousness, you can even see this dance going on. There's a, a place in India called Brindavan where Krishna lived supposedly long, long, long ago. And there's a garden there, Radha Kunj, Radha's garden. And Radha is Krishna's beloved. And the idea is that every night, Radha and Krishna make love in this garden. The garden has a wall around it. They lock the gates to the garden at night. But if you want to stay in there overnight, you can be there. The, the story is if you stay there overnight and you see God making love with God, you'll go insane. And I thought, well, that's not such a bad idea. I mean, what a, what a way to end your life. You go crazy going, seeing God making love with God. So I decided I was going to do this. And I got some bananas to sustain me through the night. And it was getting darker. They hadn't closed the gates yet. And all of a sudden, I was attacked by a horde of monkeys who wanted my bananas. <laughs> and they started crawling all over me. They're pretty big monkeys, right? And I decided I was going to leave. I threw them my bananas and ran out the gate. And I never did see God making love with God, except as we are here together, of course. Any other, any other comments? I mean, certainly there are Christian mystics who had a very tantric relationship with Christ and Mary, Julian of Norwich, St. Teresa of Avila, Meister Eckhart had very uh, tantric relationships with the divine. It wasn't called that, and rather than trying to give a complete overview of how every true religion does have a tantric stage, which happens right before merging into non-duality, I'm just concentrating here on the Hindu-Buddhist, which in some ways uh, I'm most familiar with, but not at all implying that that's the, that's the only part of uh, culture that promotes this idea of the mother. In one way, my experience is that the deeper I get into this path, the more it seems emphasized there is a feminine relationship. There is a sense of surrender. And it, in the beginning of practice, there is Dale who's sitting down on my cushion till my knees are about to fall off. And I'm going to meditate and meditate till I get somewhere. And I'm going to do practices to get there to purify myself. And there's a very goal-oriented, uh, sort of stereotypically masculine way of approaching practice. And as, as my practice continues or deepens or widens or whatever is happening to it, 
it's more a sense of that it's already all accomplished. It's all here. And yes, there are some obscurations, but the more I surrender and love, they just fall away rather naturally. That they they don't have to be seen as so problematic. So from from the standpoint of Tantra, there really are no impurities. The fundamental message of Tantra is that it's all sacred, that there are no impurities, and that we look at the world right now and economically and COVID from the standpoint of health and politically and environmentally, there are things that seem way, way, way out of balance. But at the same time, when when a child is growing up, for those of you who are parents and those of you who have seen children growing up, children go out of balance. And then parents help them come back into balance. They, they You go through the terrible twos. You go through being afraid to be uh, away from your parents. You go through pushing your parents away. You go through the crazy times of adolescence. And eventually, you become a mature adult. Uh, a friend of mine, Dwayne Elgin, who is married to, it's kind of complicated since I'm not married. He's the, he's married to my son's mother's sister. He's my son's uncle. He'd be my brother-in-law if I had gotten married, right? But I never did. So he's my faux brother-in-law. Let's leave it at that. So he writes all these books about voluntary simplicity and about Gaia. And what Dwayne says, I think it's really wonderful is that humanity is at the stage of adolescence as a whole. We, we're, we're, we've gone beyond uh, being just childish, we're adolescent, but we're certainly not adult yet. And adolescence is a very dangerous time. During adolescence, human beings are most likely to run off the rails, to commit suicide, to get wildly intoxicated, to... Really do things that are not particularly wise, just as a way of exploring who they are and what their power is. And that collectively, we're at this adolescent stage, which is a very dangerous stage. I mean, we could uh, drive ourselves into a tree collectively here or something, right? Hopefully, there is enough people practicing and, and generating other kinds of energy and bring that energy into economic and political and medical and psychological environments that it begins to, to balance things. But, you know, time will tell. Let me say that, uh, first of all, I'm not a Buddhist teacher. Uh, and Buddhism developed 2,500 years ago when people had a very different relationship with their mothers. And I will say that there is a new generation of Buddhist teachers, Tibetan teachers, Zen teachers, who were either born in the West or were educated in the West, who are much more psychologically sophisticated than maybe the first or second wave of teachers that came over back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and were still sort of culturally identified with what it's like to grow up in Tibet or... Uh, Japan or wherever it might happen to be. I do remember and uh, being at a Tibetan empowerment many years ago, and there was a lovely, lovely lama who was doing a practice about the heart. And he said, okay, as we begin the practice, 
everybody open your heart. Maybe the best way to do it is to remember your mother. And then he said, oh, I forgot this is America. Thinking of your mother isn't going to necessarily open your heart. So think of somebody else that might open your heart. And in a way, it was kind of funny, but in a way, it was so, so very sad that he lived in a culture where you think of your mother, and of course, that opens your heart. And here he was in a, in a country where, for some people, that's true, and for other people, it is very problematic. You know, the more I thought about it, I, I don't think that Buddhism or the Dalai Lama are anti-emotion. I think they're anti-being caught in emotion, and that it's a little more subtle of a, of a conversation than Western psychology often gives it credit for. And I know there are some very wise and refined psychologists and psychotherapists and social workers in the room here. And there, I'm not, I'm not at all being critical of anybody, but Buddhism, just like Christianity or inner religion is being practiced and taught at all kinds of levels of understanding. I met the Dalai Lama many times and he seems to be one of the kindest people I've ever met. And when I read the stuff he, he says, he talks about anger as like a poison, but that there's also this tantric understanding that, so for instance, if we look at Buddhism, there are the three turnings of the wheel of Buddhism. The first is Hinayana Theravada Buddhism, Vipassana, the mindfulness school. When an obscuration arises, when a, a passion arises, they call it, you become aware of it and you replace it with something wholesome. When you're feeling anger, you're aware of your anger and you replace it with anti-anger eventually. And then Buddhism eventually moved from uh, Ceylon, India, Burma. I'm using the old names, not the new names, Sri Lanka, my, Myanmar, every, all the complication there. But anyway, it moved east, Japan, China, Korea, and became Mahayana Buddhism, great vehicle. You're practicing for all beings, vehicle big enough to get everybody across the ocean of suffering. Now when a, a passion arises, you have compassion for it, and you transform it through compassion. In Tantra, when a passion arises, you instantaneously transmute it into its wholesome analog, if you will, so that anger is really the same energy as cutting through, the energy that discriminates between wisdom and ignorance. Anger is just energy. It's not, it's not good or bad. It's not, it's not pure or impure. It's just energy. But if we look carefully enough in all of these three schools, there is still the notion that we have to work with anger or fear or, or narcissism or whatever the emotion is and get it to this wholesome place. Whereas finally, we get to Dzogchen, non-duality, Advaita Vedanta, where anger is just anger. Anger is just as much God as not anger. Right? It's all, it's all, it's all God. The difference between non-duality and Tantra is in Tantra, I'm God and you're God and everything's God. In non-duality, there's no me to be God, right? <laughs> there's, there's nobody meditating. It, it's just experiencing is going on. In Tibetan Buddhism, 
the evolution of practice, the trajectory of practice. It starts out with cultivating mindfulness, just like every practice you'd expect. And then we move to devotion. You're devoted to the guru as an external deity, as an external being, or or to a deity. You're you're devoted to something outside of yourself. And then we extend the heart further to compassion, which is harder than dualistic devotion because we're opening our heart to suffering. But then in Tantra, we're seeing that we too are the deity. Okay, so we've gone from mindfulness to devotion to compassion to this tantric devotion to all reality. It's very difficult to just jump into Tantra. You could pick somebody off the street and they could go to an empowerment and the teacher would say, here's the mantra and here's the visualization. You are now Christ. You are now Mother Mary. You are now Buddha. You are Tara. And the person could hold this picture in their mind for a few seconds, maybe, but that the the empowerment would really not happen. It's, as they call it, an open secret. You can pay the money, you can buy the book, you can get the practice, but until the mind is stable enough, non-reactive enough to rest in the truth that you are the deity, it's it's just it's just a lovely conversation, but it's not it's not going to be uh, and it can be inspiring to go back and create the foundation. So that right now, there are a lot of people here in Northern California and also on the East Coast and at, down at UCLA who are doing psychedelic research as a psychotherapeutic agent. And the notion is that if one takes a, a, a psychedelic in a controlled clinical setting, it can be a psychotherapeutic aid to working with fear of death, to working with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, to working with alcoholism or chronic depression. And these experiments have been quite successful, actually. But it's not that it allows you to just have this experience and stay there. It shows you that there is a larger context to what you're perceiving as reality and that you don't need to use alcohol or stay depressed, that there is another way of dealing with things, but you have to go back and deal with them. You have to find in yourself the path forward. In fact, in, in India, they say the job of the guru takes place in one second. She or he shows you the, the reality of things, but doesn't do it for you. After showing you, then you have to take this view and bring it into moment-to-moment living reality. I say all these really complicated things about Buddhism and Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, and Tantra, and non-duality. And really, when I was leaving India, I said to Maharaji, hey, Maharaji, when I was in uh, America before I came here, I was a scientist. And I'm going back there. I don't really think I want to be a scientist. What should I do? Do you have any instructions for me? And I thought maybe he'd say, well... Uh, become a psychotherapist or study transpersonalist or stuff. He said, just keep saying the mantra that I gave you, which <laughs> is his only instructions, right? And I, I was a little bit disappointed, but I have, I've had the experience that that those instructions have lasted 
very well since 1972. So it's almost 50 years now, whereas some teachings last for a, a few days or a few weeks. And if you get a really good teacher here, she tells you something and it lasts for six months or a year. What I'm really getting to here is that it's useful to find a practice where you can begin to see this tantric view when you're living with your mother or you're losing your money or you're, you've got cancer where the rubber meets the road, as the saying goes. And for me, it's saying a mantra. It's so I don't emphasize that because there's not much I can teach. I'm not going to make a living saying, oh, just say a mantra, right? I have to make it a lot more complicated for everybody. <laughs> so that so that when I'm dying, I, I, I'm not going to sit cross-legged. I'm going to be saying my mantra. If, if, if you were in a car that started spinning out of control, or was like out of control and was like sliding toward a, a immovable object. Where would your mind go? Where would your heart go? What would be the natural impulse of here's, here's the thing I'd like to, here's my connection right now. How can you stay connected? So that this notion, like Maharaji says, the best form to worship God is every form. What I do is I'm walking down the street and I'm saying my mantra. And then it's easier for me to see these other people in all these really weird disguises as some face of God. Mother Teresa, when she would take a, a pick a leper out of the gutter in, in Calcutta, said, I'm seeing Christ in his distressing disguise. Everybody is Christ or Buddha or the mother in their disguises. Sheila and Sheila's cat and and everybody in the room, even the cat's got a disguise, right? But some most disguises are so good that we buy into the disguise. Trump's got this fantastic disguise, right? It's like it's like, whoa, look at that disguise. He's that guy, right? <laughs> right. There was a an interesting time we were with Maharaji and the president of India, who is his devotee, came to visit. And He's not the prime minister. The president of India is not nearly as big a deal as the prime minister. He's a big deal. He's the president. So he came with his entourage, two or three cars full of hangers-on, if you will. And he brought expensive sweets and fruits and made a big deal of it and spent some time with Maharaji. And then as he was leaving and driving up the side of the mountain valley up, up in his car with the other cars, Maharaji turned to us and said, all that fuss, and he's just a worldly king. He's just a worldly king. <laughs> it's like, what's the big deal, right? So that's kind of a more tantric view. It's like, well, this guy's the president, and this guy cleans the toilets, and they're both God, right? I mean, what's the, what's the difference here? One's got more money, one's got more power, but do we get caught in that? And particularly, do we get caught in those identities in ourselves? I'm a cancer patient. I'm a smart person. I'm a rich person. I'm a poor person. I might lose my money. I am losing my money. Look at what a great therapist I am. Look at what a great meditator I am. I'm not meditating enough. <laughs> it's like, you know, all that is the mother. It's just unfolding. <laughs>